0: I want to invite you to turn in your Bibles to Acts 26, uh, as we continue our series, You shall be my witnesses. Listen to these words of the Lord, beginning at verse one of Acts 26. So Agrippa said to Paul, "You have permission to speak for yourself." Paul stretched out his hand and made his defense. I consider myself fortunate that it is before you, King Agrippa, I am going to make my defense today against all the accusation of the Jews, especially because you are familiar with all the customs and controversies of the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. My manner of life from my youth spent from the beginning among my own nation and in Jerusalem is known by all the Jews. They have known for a long time, if they are willing to testify, that according to the strictest party of our religion, I have lived as a Pharisee. And now I stand not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priest, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. In this connection, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven brighter than the sun that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. When we had fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, who are you, Lord? The Lord said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. But rise, stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you To this day, I have had the help that comes from God, and so I stand here testifying both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that the Christ must suffer, and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he will proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles." And as he was saying these things in his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. Paul said, I am not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I am speaking true and rational words, for the king knows about these things. And to him I speak boldly, for I'm persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice, for this has not been done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. And Agrippa said to Paul, in a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? And Paul said, whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also uh, all who hear me this day might become such as I am except for these chains. Then the king rose, the governor and Bernice, and those who were sitting with them. And when they had withdrawn, they said to one another, This man is doing nothing to deserve death or imprisonment. And Agrippa said to Festus, this man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. This is the Word of God. Thanks be to God. Can I ask someone to give me some water? Thank you. Let's pray. Father, we give you praise and glory and honor and thanks. We worship you this morning. As our King and our Lord, we worship you this morning because you have spoken by your word. And we pray this morning that by the power of the Spirit through that word, you would indeed speak to us and do that work in us, that you would transform us and renew us, that you would enable us to walk in keeping with the truth of your word. We pray and we ask these things in the mighty name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. Hey, thank you, brother. I appreciate that. Uh, Chuck Swindoll once said, we can live several weeks without food, days without water, and only minutes without oxygen, but without hope, forget it. Without hope, forget it. The Scriptures, of course, speak to the necessity of hope for the believer In Romans 8, Paul declares, for in this hope we were saved. Now, hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. And later in that same letter, in chapter 15, Paul says this, for whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. And again, in the same chapter, he prays, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace and believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. But the hope in the Scripture, the hope of which Paul speaks, is not, it's not a general hope. It's a very specific hope. It is a hope that Paul tells Agrippa was promised long ago, a promise God made to the patriarchs and confirmed by the mouth of the prophets. It was a hope that up to that present time, the religious rulers and the people of Israel were hoping to attain, worshiping night and day, longing for that very hope to be fulfilled. It was a hope defined by more than a mere feeling or wish for something. Rather, The hope they were waiting for, the hope that Paul was now about to proclaim to Agrippa and all who were present listening was a tangible thing, a thing that when it came to be seen and experienced, you would know it was there. (laughs) You see, what they were hoping for and what Paul was about to proclaim was the hope of redemption. It was the hope of human beings redeemed from their bondage to sin and death, and the very creation itself from its bondage to decay. That's the context in which that first Scripture I read from Romans 8, that's the context in which this hope is set. And indeed, Paul's message to Agrippa is a message that is in keeping with that hope. Paul isn't proclaiming less than that hope to Agrippa and his audience, but the very hope of old, the hope of of God's salvation and redemption. It's an oldie but a goodie. (laughs) And it's a hope that all who trust in the Lord can have certainty about because it is a hope rooted in the character of God, the character of God as a promise keeper. How many of you all know this morning that God is a promise keeper? (laughs) You see, our hope of things being made right with God, our hope of things being made right in our relationships with each other, our hope in the world being renewed and transformed doesn't rest on the character of men, it doesn't rest on the whims of human fate. It doesn't rest on the power of positive thinking. It doesn't rest on the direction of the political winds of empires. It doesn't rest on our technology or ingenuity. It doesn't rest on our philosophizing or prophesizing. It does not rest on any of these things. The redemption of ourselves, of our relationships with each other, and the very world itself is rooted in one thing and one thing alone. It is rooted in our God's promise keeping nature. God made a promise. God made a promise long ago to our ancestors in the faith and confirmed it through the message of the prophets. And now Paul is about to tell Agrippa and his audience what he has told everyone who would listen to him, that that promise-keeping God has now made good on that promise. He made good on it by raising from the dead the one he sent to fulfill it. Jesus of Nazareth, the Son of God, is hope personified, hope delivered on, hope expected, and now fulfilled. Indeed, the very hope that the world looks for in the things I mentioned above has been gifted to it by God. Men and women and children only need to turn away from those false hopes, And hope in Jesus and the redemption that God longs to give them will be theirs. Our hope, brothers and sisters, is to be found in Jesus, for hope in Him changes everything. (laughs) Hope in Jesus changes everything. So why should we look to Jesus for this hope? And what does hope in Jesus actually change? What does it change? If it changes everything, what does, what, does it change? what does that look like? Well, I want to start here. Hope in Jesus changes us. Hope in Jesus changes us. As Paul is giving his defense before Agrippa, he turns the clock back, if you will, on his own past. He tells Agrippa, I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth, And I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests. but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. In essence, Paul tells Agrippa that he had been where his accusers were now in terms of their present attitude toward him. He had been there. He knew the religious zeal that led to an unrelenting rage to destroy any and everyone who stood in the way of what he and his religious peers believed were God's promises. He knew the anger that drove them to pursue him and whatever means they could muster to destroy him and his work. He knew the fury. That that would drive one who believed they were protecting their God, their own family, and their own people's interests to unsympathetically destroy the families of others to accomplish it. Make no mistake, when Paul threw Christians in jail, he was destroying not only their individual lives, but the lives of their families and communities as well. Paul knew the misplaced zeal for God that can turn one into a monster— Indeed, when Paul thinks back to his persecution of the church, he says this of himself, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent. He says, I received mercy because I acted in ignorant unbelief, and the grace of our Lord overflowed from me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am foremost." Paul saw himself as the foremost of sinners, but something happened in Paul's life. To put it plainly, brothers and sisters, Jesus happened in Paul's life. He says to Agrippa, at midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when they had fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It's hard for you to kick against the goals. And I said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, but rise, stand up on your feet for I have appeared to you for this purpose to appoint you as a servant and a witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you. Yeah, Jesus made himself known to Paul. The light of God's glory in Jesus illumined the sinful direction of Paul's life, even though that sin was done in ignorance. While Paul was acting a fool, to put it plainly, Jesus showed up in his life and turned it around. As a pastor colleague, Pastor Pearson used to say, Paul got picked up, turned around, and his feet got placed on solid ground. I wonder if anybody in the house has had Jesus happen in your life. I wonder if anyone in the house can testify to the used-to-be part of your own story. I wonder if anybody can say with confidence that your life was headed in the direction of hopelessness, and now because of Jesus, there is hopefulness. You see, you see, if you have actually met Jesus, if you have actually put your faith in Him, you can't stay the same person that you used to be. You say, but pastor, I've been a believer since my youth. I wasn't like Paul. I wasn't that bad. Correction. You just didn't know you were that bad. For David declares in the scriptures about himself Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. What you should do is thank God that you had parents or grandparents or other family members who knew you needed Jesus and were committed to bringing you before him because you were a mess. But now Jesus has transformed you and made you new. Hope in Jesus changes us because only in Jesus can that old nature, the us that is committed to our own sinful ways, be put to death. Only in Jesus can our human striving cease. Only in Him can those misplaced hopes in our own zeal for God be replaced with the hope rooted instead in God's zeal to reveal His own name in us and through us hope in Jesus. Hope in Jesus changes us. The light of His glory exposes us in our sinfulness. And then Jesus in His mercy, forgiveness, and love offers us new life, a new way of life centered on bringing His illuminating person to others. And here's the evidence that that change has taken place in our lives. The evidence is Obedience the evidence is obedience. No, I don't mean perfect obedience, but obedience nonetheless. Paul says to Agrippa, after telling him about his illuminating experience with Jesus, he says, "'Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision.'" But declare first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, and throughout all the region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with repentance. You see, the evidence that our hope in Jesus is changing us is obedience. It's obedience. It's turning away from the old path, or the old paths, plural, and turning down the new path that Jesus has pointed us toward. Is doing what Paul did and was called to teach others to do, to perform deeds in keeping with repentance. Are we really a people rooted in the hope of Jesus? Then our lives should actually bear fruit in keeping with that change. The religious rulers prided themselves on not being like the sinners of the land, of being morally upright. Yet here they were, as we saw in the previous chapters, making plans to kill Paul, violating the Sixth sixth Commandment. And when that failed, as they had done with Jesus, they sought the Roman officials' help to accomplish the task. You see, we can say we hope in Jesus all we want to, but if we keep committing ourselves to the life-destroying patterns of the past without repentance, then one must ask if our hope is really rooted in Him. And so the call here, brothers and sisters, really is to examine ourselves and to allow ourselves to be examined by others. Not for condemnation, but so that we might be led to true repentance that leads to true faith, that leads to true change. Paul's hope in Jesus led to change, which led to true obedience in his life. My question this morning is, what about us? Do we really hope in Jesus? Is that hope really changing us? Is it really changing us so that it is producing obedience in us to our Lord and to our Savior, where we are doing the things that He calls us to? Hope in Jesus changes us. But hope in Jesus also changes our relationships. Hope in Jesus changes our relationships. In recounting his own story of conversion, Paul shares with Agrippa the purpose for which Christ turned his life around. He recalls Jesus saying that his his revealing himself to Paul would include delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you, to open their eyes so they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are being sanctified in me. Central, central to Paul's gospel teaching has been the proclamation that the kingdom of God is one where Jews and Gentiles share equally in the promises of God, the promises made to the patriarchs and confirmed by the prophets. God's kingdom His kingdom, His new community purchased by the blood of His Son knows nothing, knows nothing of the segregated, divided, classist, ethnocentric realities of our present relationships. The fault of the religious rulers not grabbing hold to this truth was not to be found in God. It was to be found in them. And in any who joined with them in believing that God's salvific plan excluded people along ethnic lines, the blessing of illumination, freedom from Satan, forgiveness of sins is joined by the promise of a shared place among those who are being sanctified in Jesus, those who are being set apart by Jesus and renewed include people from Paul's own countrymen, as well as people from every family on the earth. The promise made to Abraham of worldwide blessing through his family has now been fulfilled in Christ. And despite our denominational distinctions, there is only one Christian family. I'm gonna say it again. Despite our denominational distinctions, there is only one Christian family. And that family is made up of men, women, and children from among all the families of the earth. And it would not be lost. It would not be lost on those listening to Paul at his trial or hearing that he was claiming that Jesus was doing something through faith that they were trying to do through force. Rome, Rome could claim itself as an empire that brought peace to the world. And indeed, Nero was doing just that. Yet it was a peace that was won through conquest. It was a peace that was won through force. It was a peace that was won through military force. It was a peace that was won through political force. Yet right under Rome's nose, God was building his own family, not by force, not by political manipulation, but through the preaching of the good news about Jesus, opening people's minds to see God's truth, setting them free from their most powerful spiritual enemy, Satan, forgiving them of their sins, the central cause of their division between God and themselves and between each other. And if this were not enough… He gave them an equal place, a shared place in His kingdom, a kingdom without class distinctions or ethnocentric spaces where one person's culture rules over another. This is what hope in Jesus does. Hope in Jesus enables us not only to imagine the end of our relational divisions, but through the preaching of the gospel in word and deed, it enables us to work for the end of those divisions. As a Jew... As a Jew, called to bear the message of the gospel, especially to the Gentiles, Paul stood between these two communities, calling them to this new relational reality of sharing God's space, His kingdom space together. And I just want to keep impressing upon us. I want to keep impressing upon us that Paul's call is our call, that Paul's call is our call. We are called, as the church, to stand within and between the communities in our own local setting. And as God leads us, we're called to do the same among the communities of the world. We are meant to stand within and between helping those communities in Christ to understand what it means biblically to share God's space together, both in the world and in the church in particular. And this is the work that Isaiah points to in Isaiah 2 where he prophesies, it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills and all nations shall flow to it. And many people shall come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his past. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations and shall decide disputes for many peoples. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. O house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. The light of the Lord is change relationships. And those changed relationships come as a result of our hope in Jesus. Hope in Jesus changes our relationships, leads us toward proclaiming a gospel, a kingdom in which Jews and Gentiles share the same space, God's space together. And these two communities that were once divided from each other represent the divisions that still exist today in our own world. And just as Paul sought to preach the unifying gospel of Jesus to them, so we are called to preach that unifying gospel in our relationships today. And I want you to note that among the elements of this unifying message is a shared place among those who are being sanctified. And I note it because it is really at this point that the divisions manifest themselves. Even the Jewish believers got to the point of believing that the Gentiles could share in the blessings of illumination, the freedom from Satan, and the forgiveness of sins. Yet when it came to eating together, when it came to cultural exchange, when it came to being under the authority of people not from my tribe, when it came to political differences, when it came to my sons might fall in love with their daughters, but that was a different place of sharing God's space together. and many were not ready for that. Why? Because they failed to understand the basic Christian teaching that we are all being sanctified, that all of us are broken, that all of us are being transformed by the power of Jesus, and that sanctification process touches every area of our lives. We're all being purged of our self-centered tendencies at every level of our existence. From how we do politics, to how we view and use power, to how we relate to one another across gender and race and generation, the place we inhabit together is a place of sanctification. It is a place in which Jesus is purging out of us all of that self centered, self focused meism and replacing it with his own heart of service and love. It is a place where Jesus through our cross-cultural relationships, is by the Spirit, through the Word, transforming us into that community purchased by His blood and described in Revelation 5 and Revelation 7. So what this means, application-wise, is that those persons whom God is drawing into your community, our community, who are not like us, not from our tribe, are not simply there to be taught by us. They are there through Christ, to teach you, to teach us. So here's my application. Go have dinner with someone who ain't from your tribe. Go have dinner with someone who doesn't share your political worldview. Go have dinner with someone for whom CRT is not their most pressing issue. Go have dinner with someone like that, because they also love Jesus too. And who knows, Jesus might just use them to continue the process of sanctifying you, to continue the process of purging out of you your own self-centered, self-focused tendencies. Amen, people of God. I know I'm telling the truth whether you say amen or not. Hope in Jesus changes us. Hope in Jesus changes our relationships. Hope in Jesus changes the future. Festus had had enough. He he had listened as long as he could to Paul. And his conclusion, Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. Anyone ever been called crazy on account of your faith in Jesus? Anyone ever been thought a fool for believing that faith in Jesus can change you or change the relational divisions in the world? Can I get a witness? But here's the thing. If our hope rested on the shakeable things of this world, then Festus would be right. If our hope rested on the things Festus and Agrippa and Bernice and the military tribunes and and the great men of the city were trusting in, if our hope rested on those things, then Festus would be right. If if, if we hoped in in, in social standing, Festus would be right. If we hoped in military might. Festus would be right. If we hoped in political maneuvering, Festus would be right. Yet none of these things is the ground of our hope. The ground of our hope is what Paul tells Agrippa in verse 23 that the prophets proclaim that Christ must suffer and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he will proclaim light both to the people and to the Gentiles. Let me tell you why Christians can walk out into this world and engage it at every level with confident hope. It's because Jesus rose from the dead. I'm going to say it again. The reason you can walk out into the world and engage it with confident hope is because Jesus rose again from the dead. Because He rose from the dead. The future is not one of darkness. The future is not one of gloom. It is a future that will be filled with the light of God, God's glory in Christ. If the future were uncertain, we would have very little reason to hope, but Jesus rose from the dead, a guarantee that death will not rule the future of God's world. And because we know this future, know that it is a future without death or mourning or tears or pain, our calling is to engage this present world at every level with the good news of that coming future to work, to proclaim it to both small and great alike." These are Paul's words about his own calling. To this day, I have had the help that comes from God, and so I stand here testifying both to small and to great. Why is Paul so confident in his testimony? Why was he so willing to put himself at risk to tell the story of Jesus? Why was he prepared to stand before Caesar himself to tell that story? It's because he knew what Caesar did not know. It does not end here. It does not end with Caesar on the throne. It does not end with Paul in chains. It does not end after Paul's death. It does not end with God's people suffering. It doesn't end with sin enslaving, death reigning, or Satan devouring. It ends in hope fulfilled. It ends in a world made new. It ends with God's enemies being defeated. It ends with a new heavens and a new earth. Christians should be the most hopeful people in the world and the most active in doing good in the world. Why? It is because we know that it does not end here. And I didn't say Christians shouldn't grieve. And I didn't say Christians shouldn't mourn. And I didn't say Christians shouldn't be sad at the state of the world in the places where it is broken. No, what I said is, we should be the most hopeful people in the world. We should be people who mourn, but don't despair. We should be people who grieve, but don't quit. We should be people who cry, but don't retreat. Our Savior is alive, and so the future is secure. I was listening to Christianity Today panel on CRT, which I thought was very helpful, by the way. One of the things that struck me and has remained with me is a comment made toward the end by one of the panelists, a brother who works for InterVarsity. He, uh, it wasn't a comment about critical race theory per se, but rather about the tone of many among those who are doing justice work. And he said, and and I'm paraphrasing here, he said he runs into a lot of Christian people, young adult people in this case, who are engaged in justice work that are gloomy. That are gloomy and despairing. He mentioned feeling the gloom and despair of those doing this kind of work on the ground. And he notes that this sense of gloom, this sense of despair, represents an absence experientially of the gospel's future vision of the world, a world made new, which, when, le- when, which we, when we leave it out of the story and the experience of our work for justice, it leaves us gloomy. It leaves us despairing. It leaves us hopeless. Hope in Jesus changes the future. <laughs> The world, brothers and sisters, will be made new. How many of you believe it? The world will be made new. The world will be made new. And you know why? It doesn't have a choice. I'm going to say it again. The world will be made new. It doesn't have a choice. Its Creator has declared through the resurrection of His Son from the dead that death has been defeated, that sin has been conquered. Indeed, and speaking of the very renewal of the creation itself, the Apostle Paul writes to the church in Rome, for the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Paul says that's where it's headed. God's people will one day share in His glory. God's people will one day rest in His glory. God's people will one day walk around in a world that is filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. That's where it's headed. Jesus rose from the dead to ensure it. That's where it's going. So cry, but don't despair. Mourn, but don't give up. Grieve, but don't quit. Why? Because the world is headed toward the renewal of all things because of what Jesus Christ our Lord has done. The evils, the evils, the evils, and I know, I know you see and feel and experience the evils The evils that at times make this world almost unbearable to live in must give way to a future where God's children behold and rest in the glory of God. In fact, that future glory has already broken into this world through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. And it is that glory through faith in Jesus that is already shining in those who believe. Every change that God works in us individually and corporately is a sign pointing to the future. Every transformation God does in you individually and every transformation He does among us corporately is a sign of where the world is heading. So, I'd encourage you, those of us who are on the ground doing this work of proclaiming Jesus in all the broken spaces of our world, I would encourage you to open up your eyes not only to the darkness, which we must do, I would encourage us to open our eyes both to the biblical vision of our future as well as the constant demonstrations of that future displayed in the changes that Jesus is making in our own lives as well as the lives of His people corporately even if it means looking outside of our own Christian ghettos to see it, we need to open our eyes to the good future-pointing demonstrations of God's glory, which are, in fact, by the way, all around us. Is Jesus doing anything in you? Is He doing anything in you? Is He changing you? Can, can, Can you actually stand back? and see the ways God is working on the inside of you? Can you actually stand back and see the ways God is working inside of His church? Can you actually stand back and see the good that Jesus is doing? Or, 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 or is all you see darkness? Because if it is, if all you see is darkness, I want to encourage you. I want to encourage you. Take your eyes off the TV screen. Take, the eye, take your eyes off your phone for a minute. Pick up the Word of God and read it so that He can remove those scales from your eyes so that you can start to see the ways that He is at work in you and the ways He is at work around the world, pointing to the hope that is coming, the hope that is coming when our Lord returns and makes the world new. Amen, people of God. Amen. That that was an encouragement to this week to, to, to the pastor this week because the pastor gets to see lots of brokenness. The pastor sees lots of darkness. The pastor hears lots of darkness. And it's just helpful for me. I don't know about you. It's just helpful for me to be reminded from the word of God of where it is all headed because of our hope in our God. Hope in Jesus changes everything. It changes us. It changes our relationships, and it changes our future. Brothers and sisters, we are a people rooted in a sure hope. It's a hope that has as its security the nature of our God. It's a promise keeping God. And God has kept that promise to bring salvation to the nations. He has kept His promise by raising His Son, our Lord Jesus, from the grave. And through faith in Jesus, we have a certain and sure hope a hope that changes us, a hope that changes our relationships, and a hope that changes our future. Amen, people of God. Amen.